0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.
1: If you've got your Bibles, we are reading from Joshua chapter 9, verses 1 to 15. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard this, heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they, on their part, acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patch sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you, and where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon, and to Og king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now behold, it is dry and crumbly. Verse 13. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thank you, Clarice. I think this picture is called uh, Mary Consoles Eve. I saw it on Facebook a couple of months ago, and I was quite struck by it, because I think it points to the story that actually underpins all of human history. On the left of the picture, you'll see Eve in the simple clothes she received after she and Adam fell into sin in the Garden of Eden. She looks ashamed here, doesn't she? Regretful, clearly aware that that sin had cursed the world. Their sin had cursed the world and brought suffering. But on the right, we see Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus, consoling Eve, inviting her to touch her belly because there's salvation there. Now, don't stress, I'm not going to say that Mary is the saviour. That's not what I'm about to say here. What she's doing here is she's pointing to the fact that within her womb is the saviour, Jesus the one God sent to secure forgiveness of sin and to overcome the tragedy of the fall. And so in this beautiful little picture, we have this uh, example and this illustration of the gospel of sin and forgiveness, of God's plan for rescuing us through his son. It's a beautiful picture, but I wonder if you can see the other element in it, and that is the serpent wrapped around Eve's feet and legs. The serpent, of course, is the devil, and you see him here trying to stop the woman and hold her back, trying to hurt and destroy her. And we see in Genesis 3 that that is actually the devil's great desire. In Genesis 3, God comes to to uh, to the people, uh, to Eve and to the, to the devil and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And what we're seeing there is we're setting up, God is setting up this great conflict that will go right through history, the great drama of human history. Humanity is sin, but God will send a Messiah to save his people and to give them life unless the devil can stop that. That's what the devil's trying to do. This becomes his great project. Only if the baby is born and fulfils his mission will salvation be won. So the devil will do everything he can to seek to prevent that by destroying the children of Eve and cutting off the line to the Messiah. He needs to find a way to stop that from happening. And I want you to keep this picture in mind over the next couple of weeks as we look at the next few chapters of Joshua. We're heading heading into a part of this book where God's people claim the land that God has promised for them and set apart for them. This will become their home, their place of rest, and this will also become the home for the Messiah. This is where God will bring this Messiah into the world so at the same time, the devil would do everything he can to try and stop this. He'll try to strangle and subvert and poison God's people, corrupting them and cutting off the line of succession. He'll try to do something to destroy the people of God so that the Messiah doesn't enter the world. And really, his tactics can be defined as extermination or infiltration. He will seek to destroy them in outright war through weapons and violence, or more subtly through infiltration, trying to get in amongst the people of God and to break down their holiness and their uniqueness, try to turn them away from God, tempt them to follow a different path, and so lose their uniqueness. That's really what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks. And as chapter 9 begins, we start to see both of those things, Israel starting to make an impact. They've Cross the Jordan River. They've taken the cities of Jericho and Ai, and so the other nations sense that they're not going to stop there, and so they need to come and fight them. Chapter, verse 2, they gather together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. This is that that what, what I was talking about with the devil's plan of extermination, this direct conflict, an attempt to destroy God's people with arms and ammunition. But we'll also see something else. See, There's another group of people who don't want to fight, the people of the city of Gibeon. Gibeon was an impressive city. In chapter 2, we're told that it was a great, uh, chapter 10, we're told it was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and their people were renowned for their fighting ability. All its men were warriors, it says in chapter 10. But they don't want to fight. They actually want to make a peace treaty. But in doing so, they will infiltrate God's people. And so to do this, they know that they have to trick Israel into it. To understand what's going on here, we need to understand a little bit about God's plans for the promised land and the people who live there. Uh, See, God had promised his people this land, but it was currently occupied by other nations, other tribes and people groups like the Amorites or the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And God had called the Israelites to actually destroy these people In an act of judgment. You see, these people had been vicious and cruel and vile for centuries, for generations. Deuteronomy 12, every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. And so God had resolved to judge them. He'd shown great patience. We hear about their evil as early as Genesis 15. But they've persisted in their defiance. And now the time for mercy has passed. God is Sending people in to judge them. Leviticus 18, the land had become unclean because of them, and God was now going to the land was now going to vomit out its inhabitants, we're told. And so, really, two things are happening. God is sending his people into the land so that they can claim the land that he had promised for them, but he's also judging the people who were living there. And so, in taking the land, Israel becomes the executioners of God's judgment. And because of this, his instructions to his people are very clear and strict. Anyone who lived in the immediate vicinity of the land was to be judged, was to be destroyed. Now, we find this hard to deal with, obviously. This feels harsh. Couldn't he just let them live? So we need to understand that these people pose an existential threat to God's people that there was a danger of them infiltrating and changing their culture and their religion, that they would uh, break down and compromise their holiness. Deuteronomy 20, God says, you shall devote them to complete destruction as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all the abominable practices, practices that they've done for their gods and so you sin against the Lord your God. And in fact, he warned them specifically against making a treaty with them. Exodus 34, take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. That's kind of the setup for our story. Now, as I know there's a lot of big concepts in there about violence and so on. And we're looking at that much more in much more detail next week. But you, as we kind of, Imagine this situation. Here is this group of people who want to make a treaty with Israel, but actually God has called Israel to judge them. Uh, They live within the immediate vicinity. They're about seven miles from Jericho. They've got a history of great sin. So the instructions that God has are clear. They should destroy the Gibeonites. But there is also another set of instructions that God has. While Israel weren't allowed to make treaties with their neighbours, they could with those who lived a long way away. Deuteronomy 20, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And that's probably because the the nations that were further away weren't such a danger to God's people and their morals and ethics. So I have this situation where the Gibeonites uh, should be judged but they know there is a possible way out if they can pretend to be from far away and convince the Israelites of this. So that's what they try to do. They come to the Israelites with stale bread and tattered clothes, worn wine skins, as if they've travelled from a long way away. To leave no doubt, they say in verse 6, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. And at first it sounds like the Israelites are quite suspicious of them. Verse 7, perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They, They understand what God expects of them. They don't want to do the wrong thing. But the Gibeonites have their props and they say the right words. We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. And the Israelites fall for it. They take a closer look at the food and they're convinced and they make this treaty promising protection to the Gibeonites. And in so doing, they expose themselves to great danger. They have allowed the enemy to come to infiltrate uh, their society. You might remember the story of the Trojan horse. There's this ancient battle between the Greeks and the people of Troy. Finally, after much fierce fighting, uh, the Greeks look like they've sailed away and they leave this great big gift of a big wooden horse. The Trojans celebrate the victory. And they wheel this horse into their city, but actually the Greeks have smuggled some of their troops, their commandos, into the horse. And then by cover of nightfall, the guys jump down off the horse and open the doors and let in the rest of their compatriots, and they uh, overtake and take the whole city. It's a classic story, and it's become a, a proverb for us, hasn't it? That is when you allow your enemy into your community, That's that's what we talk about, this Trojan horse that can get in other things without you realising, and that's what the Israelites have done. They've made this treaty with the men of Gibeon and allowed themselves to be infiltrated by the enemy. The Gibeonites aren't going to kill them with swords, but there is a great danger that they will undermine their holiness. This is what I was saying at the start. The devil can try to work through extermination or infiltration. So I think we can see the devil seeking to infiltrate God's people in this story. As David Jackman writes, it seems likely that this incident represents an attempt to destroy Israel from within, bringing Canaanite idolatry and immorality into the very heart of the nation and so threatening the worship of the living God and the fulfilment of his purposes. And do you see where God's people went wrong? Well, they didn't seek God's wisdom. Verse 14, so the men took some of their provisions but did not ask counsel from the Lord. That was the fatal mistake. They they didn't involve God. They worked it out on their own without reference to God. And worst of all, the leaders are culpable for this. We're told in verse 15, Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. It was the leaders of the people who did this. And this is particularly sad because We know that Joshua has been called to follow God's law and to seek out God's wisdom. Chapter 1, verse 8, he was told to meditate on God's law. As long as you're thinking about God's truth, then all your ways will prosper. If you follow God's will, then everything will work out okay. But they haven't followed God's will here. They haven't sought counsel from the Lord. None of them have. I mean, they were clearly suspicious. They asked questions but they didn't go further than that. They didn't bring it to God himself. As Dale Ralph Davis puts it, it wasn't that they didn't think, but that they didn't pray. Yahweh's direction was available, but it was ignored. And perhaps as we go along in this passage, maybe we can just jump out for a moment and to think about our own lives and how we make decisions as well. How often do we go ahead with things without first consulting God. We're called as God's people to to do God's will, but sometimes how often do we actually know God's will? How often do we seek his will? See, sometimes that means that we make mistakes, do things that are wrong. We make foolish commitments, unwise financial investments. Perhaps we ruin our relationships because we act impulsively in arrogance or pride or anger or impatience because we're not seeking God's will in this. We're making decisions independent from him. As Davis puts it, we must beware of that subtle unbelief that assumes I have this under control. I know for myself it's, it's easy for me to presume God's will I have this general vibe of what God wants, and then I just kind of go along with that. But I don't necessarily pursue that further into more detail. And sometimes this doesn't mean so much that I go off and do something that's flagrantly wrong. But what I've noticed as I was reflecting on this is I don't necessarily do all that is right. What I mean by that is I've noticed a big difference when I really pursue God's will and pray about something. So if I pray before a meeting, I'll find that God gives me much greater clarity and wisdom. If I pray before a sermon, you spend considerable amount of time in a, in praying before a sermon, it's, it's more insightful and people get more applications from it. Anytime I truly seek God's will, it's not just that I avoid wrong things, but I get to open up more of what is right, get into his path of truth and wisdom. I'm reminded of a quote I used a couple of months ago by H.B. Charles. Prayer is arguably the most objective measurement of our dependence on God. The things you pray about are the things you trust God to handle. The things you neglect to pray about are the things you trust you can handle on your own. So, So how much are we relying on God's strength, seeking his will? How much are we just living independent? Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Now jumping back into the story, we see that God's people have sinned. They haven't sought out God's wisdom. And as we read on, we see the mess that this puts them in. It doesn't take them long to realize they've been had. Verse 16, at the end of three days after they'd made a covenant with them, they heard that they, the Gibeonites, were their neighbors and that they lived among them. They realized that they shouldn't have made this treaty. Immediately, the people want to do something about it. In verse 17, they charge down to Gibeon and the surrounding cities, and it seems that they're determined to attack them. I think what's happening in them, what's in their minds are the lessons from last week. Uh, last week, you'll remember that they went to the city of Ai and they uh, boldly went up, assuming that they would have this easy victory and then they suffered a whole bunch of losses and they they come back and they ask, God, what, what's happened? Aren't we supposed to win? Where is the strength that you're supposed to provide? And then God says, well, it's actually because you sinned. One of the people of Israel, a guy called Achan, had, had disobeyed God at Jericho, taken something that he shouldn't have taken, and so this was why they'd had this defeat. And so until they dealt with Achan, God wouldn't give them the victory. And so I think this is in the mind of the people here with the Gibeonites. They realise that they've done the wrong thing in making this treaty and so they worry that God will judge them until they get out of it. They have to just do this. The problem is to break the treaty would also expose them to God's wrath. You see, God's people have bound themselves now to the Gibeonites with this oath, and God takes vows very seriously. Numbers 30, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And so in verse 19, the leaders say, we've sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. They, they realise that they can't do this and that actually if they do that, they'll expose themselves to God's wrath. Let them live, let wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. As David Jackman writes, "If you if you break a promise, then you become liable to God's wrath for that since his name has been involved in the whole thing. So they're kind of in a bit of a bind. They're stuck between they've made this treaty, which they shouldn't have made, but now they also can't get out of it. Again, jumping out of the story, there's something here about the importance of our integrity, isn't it? The importance of us being men and women of our word. That's what Jesus said Matthew 5, you shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So we need to be willing to keep our word even when it's hard, even if we come to regret the promises that we've made. John Huffman tells the story of a a Christian farmer who made an agreement with another farmer to buy some produce at a a certain price. Uh, Not long after, the value of the produce uh, went down dramatically meaning that the original price was was way too high, but the farmer stuck to it. He'd made this agreement, and so he agreed, he went through with it. Then on another occasion, the farmer was selling some of his produce, and he'd set the price, and then the price went up. And so he had a choice to make, but he still sold it at that original price. Now, at this point, you're probably thinking, this guy... Doesn't know how to read the market. But what you also should see is that he's a man of his word. Whenever he made decisions, he stuck to them. Whenever he gave his word, he kept it. And so the result, Huffman reports, is that to this day, the farmer is respected for his Christian grace and character by those with whom he's done business. And that's really the key point here. See, why does God care so much about our oaths, our vows, Well, it's because ultimately it reflects on him. That's why he wanted the people of Israel to keep their vow. They'd made this vow with the Gibeonites and in so doing, they were bringing God into it. And for them to break their vow would suggest that God himself was unreliable, that God couldn't be trusted. That's why it was so important for them to keep it. And that's why it's so important for us to keep our promises, whether they're big or small we make a contract, we should stick to it. If we say we're going to be somewhere, we should do that, unless something drastic happens. If we put something on Facebook Marketplace and we suddenly get a 100 responses, we realise we probably put the price too low, we, we stick to that price. We're people of honour. Or think of the, v- the vows people might make if you get married. We should keep them, even if we regret making them even if we feel like we've fallen out of love with our spouse. Now, there are, of course, some instances where divorce is legitimate, but these situations actually affirm the importance of the vow. You see, we are released from the marriage covenant only if the other person has broken it. We're not exposed to the wrath for breaking that because the other person is exposed to that. And so actually, even in those situations, we see the power and the importance of a vow, of things that we give our commitments to. We serve a covenant-making, promise-keeping God. And so when we keep our promises, we reflect his character and we show people that he is worthy of trusting, that he won't bail when it's difficult. Now, going back into the story, the Israelites are faced with this difficult situation. They've done the right thing in keeping their covenant. But now they have to work out one nerve to do with these Gibeonites. They know they can't destroy them because that would be breaking the vow. But they also know that the Gibeonites are dangerous within their community. They understand that they don't want to just have these people infiltrate and so disrupt and corrupt their faith. So their solution is to get the Gibeonites to work at the temple. Verse 21, they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Now, I think this is the right response because it lines up with what God had commanded them. In Deuteronomy 20, he said, if you make a treaty with someone, another country, then they can come and work with you. Now, again, we might think this sounds weird. It sounds just like they're indentured slaves or something like that. But I want you to see that there's actually great wisdom and grace in what they do. In verse 27, we're told that they work for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord, which means that actually the Israelites are trying to bring these people into the community and draw them to God. See, the great threat was that these people would turn them away to false religion. So how do they respond? Well, they actually bring them in so that they can do the true religion. They draw them closer rather than further away. I think there's wisdom in that. They're trying to draw them to the true worship of God. And then the next step is they show them incredible grace. News of the Gibeonites' alliance with Israel quickly spreads and a great bunch of armies come to fight Gibeon. In verse 4, the king of Jerusalem calls together four other kings and says, come up to me and help me and let us strike Gibeon for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Now imagine how the Gibeonites feel. Like they've made this treaty with Israel to protect themselves, but that very treaty has become the reason why they're being attacked. So they call out to the Israelites, come to us, up to us quickly and save us and help us. What will the Israelites do? You see, you could understand if some of them saw this as a fortuitous twist of fate they made this mistake of making the treaty with the Gibeonites. They can't go back on it. But does that mean they have to defend them? I mean, they've committed not to destroying the Gibeonites. But what if someone else does? Oh, surely maybe that's convenient. They don't have to defend them, do they? But that's not how they think about it. Now, far from distancing themselves from the Gibeonites, they actually come and defend them. They risk their own safety to protect them. It's an incredible story of how it happens. As soon as they get the message, the cry for help. They rush and help the Gibeonites. There's no hesitation. They want to keep their oath. And then God comes through in the most spectacular way. He sends hailstones from heaven to defeat their enemies, and then he holds the sun in place for an extra day so that they can complete the job. Amazing story. We'll come back to it next week again, hopefully. But the key thing I want you to see here is that God is working for them, and God is helping them protect the Gibeonites. And what that means is that God approves of what they're doing. God is pleased that they're keeping their oaths. And if they are willing to protect the Gibeonites, then he will do it for them. In fact, you could even say that God is keeping his own vow to the Gibeonites. By, by working miraculously to defend them, it's like God is bringing them under his wing, protecting them. Israel's committed to them and Yahweh is committed to them. Israel weren't supposed to make this treaty with them. Now that they have, God will help them keep it. He will protect the Gibeonites as if they were his own people. This is a very strange story. Bizarre situation. God's people do the wrong thing, first of all, by not destroying these people. But then they do the right thing by saving them. (laughs) It's hard for us to see how this all works. But I want you to see here the power of the vow. The power of the vow, the danger of breaking it, but then the, the strengths of keeping it. What impact that can make because this would continue. As you read on in the Old Testament, we see the Gibeonites crop up several times. They continue to work at the temple. They become known as the Nethanim, the given ones. And then they seem to integrate further and further into the community. A Gibeonite would become one of King David's most trusted lieutenants. The city of Gibeon would become a key part of Jewish religious life. And in fact, there's a later point where the, where the Hivites, the, the people group, that the uh, Gibeonites belong to, they come and fight against the Israelites and the Gibeonites fight for the Israelites rather than against them. So in this battle, they stick with the Israelites rather than go back to their old people. They're that committed. They're loyal. In fact, they're so much a part of Israel that when Israel uh, gets exiled into Babylon and they come back, we read about a whole bunch of Gibeonites who come back and rebuild Jerusalem. They've become part of the people of God. And this actually points to God's greater plan. In Genesis 12, when God came to Abraham and gave him promises, one of those promises was that uh, he would become a blessing, and you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. That's what we see with the Gibeonites. They experience God's grace. And that points, for me, to the the big principle of this whole story, that what the devil means for evil, God works for good. See, there is this narrative that's been following right through human history of the devil seeking to corrupt and disrupt, to sabotage God's plans and to sow evil. But God always turns those things for good. It looked like God's people had made a mistake. They did the wrong thing. But now we're seeing that God has actually turned that for good. He's used it to show wisdom, to grow his people, and to bring the Gibeonites into his community. What the devil meant for evil, God has worked for good. And this is a principle that we see repeated uh, right throughout the Bible. It was said by Joseph after his brothers sold him into slavery. Genesis 50, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. We see it with the church in the New Testament. When persecution comes, God's people are forced out of Jerusalem and they scatter throughout the ancient world, taking the gospel with them further and further. We see it with the Apostle Paul. He's in prison for preaching the gospel, but this just means that he starts preaching in jail. Philippians 1, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And so that gives me encouragement and hope for the future. As God's people, it's easy for us to feel like the church is small, rejected, even oppressed. We're on the underside of culture. But God will work through this moment to do something. God loves to work in these moments. Whatever the devil intends for evil, God works for good. Whenever the devil seeks to exterminate or infiltrate, God can turn that for his purposes. And, of course, the best example of all is Jesus Christ. If you go back to that picture, just remember this great conflict through history. The serpent seeking out the saviour, desperate to destroy God's Messiah. And at Calvary on Good Friday, it surely looked like he had succeeded, didn't it? I mean, Jesus had come to save his people. He was the Messiah they'd been looking for for centuries. But now the devil had worked amongst them, turned their hearts against Jesus. And so this hero that he'd promised, they destroy, they kill him. They resist and reject the very saviour that God had sent them. And in this moment, surely the devil thinks that he is one. But even in that moment, God was working it for good. Just think about what Jesus said on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So even as these wicked hands are destroying him, he sees how this can be turned for good. He's praying for them. He's pointing towards the good that God will do. You see, where the devil sought to destroy him and to destroy God's plans, it was actually through the death of Christ that forgiveness and life and salvation would come. What the devil planned for evil? God works for good. And he can do that anywhere and everywhere and even inside us. You see, when I look at that photo, that picture, I look at Eve and I see myself too. She sinned, but we all sinned. As her children, we all sin, we all fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3 says that none is righteous, no, not one. We've we've all turned away, we've all resisted God and disobeyed him. And the regret and the shame that we see on her face is the shame that we feel when we realise that we are sinners. But the consolation that she is offered is the constellation we're given to. She's pointed to the womb. She's pointed to Jesus, to the Messiah, that God will send. And we stand on the other side of this. We know that that baby did come, that that baby did fulfill that ministry, that that baby died for our sin and rose again to give new life. And so now God calls us, invites us to find the hope that Mary is offering Eve, that God is offering us. We come in our shame, in our conviction that we've done the wrong thing, that we are sinners, and we find the comfort of our Saviour Jesus because God turns evil into good, even in us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this story. It's a strange one, be easy for us to not truly understand it. But we see a principle here that runs through history, this great conflict between the devil and you, between good and evil, the devil seeking to destroy your plans, but you always triumphing. We thank you that in Jesus we can be sure that you have won. And if Jesus, if you could turn the greatest evil, the killing of Jesus, into the greatest good, our forgiveness and salvation, then surely we can have hope that you will work all things together for good for us. Give us that trust. Give us that bold confidence and hope. May we see it in our lives. May we point to you. May others see it in us. Thank you that you can redeem any situation. You can redeem our mistakes. You can redeem our sins. You can turn evil to good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.